welcome to Top Tier, episode 5. I'm your host Daniel Pavluchkov, and today's guest is Siddharth Jaisval, a lead of automotive practice at Netscribes. Although you don't see consultants working with startups very often, they are solving the same problems. How to innovate, how to scale, and how to increase profitability. Average project lasts for less than half a year, and you have to deliver value really fast, just like with a product MVP. Siddharth will share if an MBA is a good background for startup work, how he approaches retention projects, and what companies could do to have less problems with innovation and growth. So let's tune in and meet Siddharth. Hi Siddharth, welcome to the show. Can you please briefly tell about your experience and the journey so far? Hi Daniel, uh, thank you for having me here today. Uh, so uh, about my experience and background, uh, so basically I have a statistics background specializing in regression modeling. From there on, uh, I went to pursue my business studies by completing my MBA, focusing on strategic management and uh, business research. Uh, I've been working in the research and consulting space for over 10 years now uh, with a keen focus on the automotive industry. Well, for the initial few years, uh, I've worked with a lot of uh, smaller consulting firms focusing on uh, most pressing business issues, uh, largely for the auto industry, before moving to uh, one of the big four, where I work very closely with uh, industrial clients in mergers and acquisitions. And currently, I'm leading the auto practice here at Netscribes, which again is a global data and insights firm. Super interesting, especially the part that you studied MBA because it's a very rare uh, degree for people working in startups. Mostly you study computer science or something else and MBA is usually for the like business world. So what parts of it did you find helpful in your position? And also, would you recommend it for people that would like to work in startups? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, for me, business studies uh, was never a pure science uh, as such, but it was more about imbibing that thought process, uh, those frameworks which are, which, which are quite helpful in solving problems. So uh, I'm sure like uh, every startup I know is essentially trying to solve a particular problem either for the customers or internally. It is more often than not, it is not very uncommon to see people getting lost in the problem rather than solving. Uh, this is where having a business degree helps. So we have frameworks and some sort of methodologies that help us in focusing the right things that really matter in solving a particular problem at hand. So for instance, uh, in, in, in day-to-day -day work, I mo most often use the Fishbone framework, for instance, uh, to identify root cause problems uh, of any business. So using these frameworks helps not, not to mistake or not to confuse a particular symptom as the original problem. Because when you do so, uh, you tend to get lost. And then that becomes a vicious circle where you try to target, firefight a symptom, whereas the underlying problem still remains. And although you might have thought that, yes, I've solved a certain business problem, but it will research because essentially it hasn't been solved, right? So these frameworks help us to pinpoint on the exact 
or at least dig to the root cause of the problem and then figure out ways to solve it. So this essentially means that we are looking at the right triggers at the right place. So in a nutshell, I think MBA is a huge advantage while working in startups where time and resources are very limited and the scope for inefficiencies are extremely low. Okay, got it. And then what is the average length of your project? How much time do you have to complete this research and suggest a plan of action and maybe execute some parts of it? Yes, uh, good question. I mean, uh, it completely depends on the size of the, uh, of the hypothesis or uh, the urgency of the client. Uh, let's say there, there's a client who needs to make a quick decision in a month's time. So there could be a project that could be just for a month where we get one month time, but there could also be engagements which could be long term, say six months to two years, right? Which is in a continuous, uh, we, we become an extended part of that client itself. So it typically ranges from two to three months, a typical project, but we also, uh, see a lot of long-term engagement which could be from six months to two years yeah two and three months sounds like not a lot of time to be honest because when we hire we have this onboarding period and adaptation period which is roughly two or three months as well and only at that after that time the person can get to 100 percent performance and really deliver great results so how do you manage that in consulting world how do you both dive in into the public and also can achieve a significant impact in just such, such a short time frame? That's a great question. Uh, <laughs> so yes, uh, it is challenging, no doubt. Uh, but we need to remember that uh, companies partner uh, with external agencies like us when internal stakeholders have limited information or insights into the business problem. So it is a already a very narrow question that we are trying to solve. So that makes it slightly easy for us to have in context and then work on it. Uh, yes, and I completely agree. Yes, two months, two to three months time is very short uh, for understanding someone's business, understanding uh, the culture of the firm and then providing a solution for people who are 30, 40 years experience in that business. It is quite difficult, but of course we we should we should remember that uh, as an analyst, our core job is that uh, to provide solutions. We are equipped with that kind of frameworks. We are equipped with that kind of support within the organization. For instance, we have a dedicated primary research team. Also, we have a dedicated expert panel. Right uh, in a in a matter of Jiffy, we we have access to these teams. So that XP, uh, so that accelerates our uh, project timeline. I mean, in the sense that uh, a typical company would take the amount of work that we do in two months. A typical company would take about six to eight months, uh, since we have dedicated processes, methodologies, and we are we have achieved quite a bit of efficiency in doing that. So uh, we could we can turn out uh, channel results in that small amount of time. But man, that still sounds like a lot of things to do in such a short period of time. I guess that's one of the reasons why you work so many hours a week. It really is a lot of stuff you have to do. 
Um, I also wanted to know, so you said that average size of the, and length of the project is two or three months, maybe six months. But what is an average persona of a company that comes to you for help? What are their challenges? What they want to get from your help? In a nutshell, people who are responsible for product development, marketing, innovation, uh, for that matter, any person in the company who is at a decision-making role uh, would would typically need some kind of solution that we provide. So, for instance, uh, product managers who want to understand the market potential or commercialization potential of a technology. So, they commission uh, uh, studies or projects with us in the lines of, uh, let's say, technology assessment or technology licensing opportunities for that product they are coming up with. Or uh, this could be just in the form of uh, strategic in nature where a corporate office is trying to understand or trying to uh, conduct a fair or a third party due diligence on let's say a potential target partner okay, who, who the corporate wants to acquire. Or it could be anything in the form of uh, financial due diligence, market due diligence, right? Or uh, we do a lot of uh, work with laboratories who have some novel idea and we do a patent landscape for them to truly understand that if this is truly novel, uh, uh, is it first time in the market or if there is a competition towards it. So these are the typical people who, who come to us. Okay, so you mentioned innovation, growth and expansion, yes. commercialization of the product. And those are all really, really serious topics and they could be core to the company and depends if the company survives on the market or doesn't. So how do you deal with the feeling that you and your team is suggesting strategies that might be responsible for the success of the company and also have a price tag, I assume, going into millions of investment from the company side? To be honest, it's 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 an overwhelming feeling when you're working on something that can have a significant impact on a company's direction or when millions of dollars of investment is at stake. So hence, we uh, take our job very seriously. Uh, although we have some room of creativity, uh, at least during the ideation phase, where we are exploring solutions for the, for the client, uh, but post that, I think it is completely data-centric approach that every aspect of our recommendation has to be validated through data, uh, has to have strong logical reasoning, and should also measure the cost and benefit of every recommendation. So I'll give you an example. Uh, so for instance, uh, we were working on an exploratory study for a sensor manufacturer for vehicles. Right. So we were scouting for various business opportunities uh, apart from their core business. So the company wanted to understand if there is any scope of generating revenue apart from selling sensors. Right. So we came up with uh, various ideas. One of the ideas which was uh, pretty awesome back then was uh, data monetization. A lot of data these sensors collect and can be monetize that data sell it to potential customers, maybe city planners, maybe uh, maybe the map companies who like TomTom, Tom or maybe all these companies might be interested in this kind of data. 
but uh, when we started doing a thorough scrutiny of this idea which on the surface of it felt really great could be a workable and feasible model but uh, eventually we realized that this opens up the our client to a lot of legal and uh, reputational risks okay so already there's a lot of uh, issue on data privacy going on in the auto industry and who owns the data is also a big controversy so when we balance the cost and the benefit of this idea we ended up uh, declining this idea altogether although it looked very uh, feasible and uh, in fact very interesting on the surface but yeah we took that hard call by saying yes the data suggests that the risk outweighs the reward hence we removed this idea altogether from our recommendation yeah it takes a lot of bravery and courage to kill your own ideas i know that firsthand from the product world we do this all the time and it never gets easier yes um you mentioned that you work a lot on the growth strategies i come from the product world and for me i know and probably you also agree that retaining customers is one of the hardest things and it's also crucial right now because more and more companies move to subscriptions business we know that acquisition cost you cannot drive it endlessly up and a lot of competitors are also going for the same customer. So you really, really need to retain them. Do you have any projects that you worked on the retainment goals? Can you share some experience and advice? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. Uh, I think every consumer oriented company goes through this phase where they've successfully won the first time customer, but retaining them becomes the hardest part. Uh, this is a common challenge in the auto industry because uh, if you look at the uh, auto business, so essentially right from the big OEMs, uh, say Ford, GM or Volkswagen. So the ultimate goal for them, the Nirvana is uh, achieving customer loyalty, not just for one generation, but uh, retaining that loyal customer in the household. So their motto is, if if the first generation has bought the Ford, their son should buy the Ford, the grandchildren should buy buy a Ford. So they want to retain households rather than just customers, right? So that's the ultimate goal for auto industry. And since I've I've been tracking the industry and working quite closely for the past ten years, so uh, this is a very common uh, challenge that most of these companies face in fact uh, the newer mobility uh, service providers so these startups are were able to acquire customers because this was such a no novel and innovative idea that they brought to the market but it becomes quite difficult to detain customers as they go by so having said that uh, based on my experience and the work in the past i can say the best solution depends on what what is your customer vision? Okay. In case for uh, businesses like micro mobility, I think uh, they have this superb golden opportunity to design what their what the market's customer vision is, because it's it's at such a nascent stage with uh, few companies trying to shape this market. It they have this opportunity to literally design and uh, 
design the fundamental pillars of customers for this particular segment having said that uh, i mean it is very difficult for automakers or mobility providers or anybody in the uh, b2c space to bring in that product differentiation i think that is what is essential for retaining this uh, customers right getting that product differentiation if your product differentiation is high the switching cost from your product is becomes naturally high and uh, this is where uh, customers need to focus like for instance in micro mobility when we're talking about uh, differentiation it is there is hardly any difference uh, most of the operators have similar pricing similar equipment uh, similar app experience now in such a scenario how do you differentiate how do you increase that switching cost for the customer from let's say a, a mobility provider a and b right so that becomes quite difficult i think the only way uh, to solve or retain customers is to brand yourself is to create that emotional message or that recall within the customer that hey uh, i resonate with let's say a bird let's say with line because line is what my purpose is for instance you look at harley davidson i mean harley davidson is is one of the oldest motorcycle companies and to be honest being in this industry they are not technologically advanced uh, the engine architecture is 30 years old i mean so there is they could hardly differentiate themselves on technology against their japanese counterparts but what they did was they created a persona a, a strong purpose around their brand right so they 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 positioned themselves as like celebrating freedom and a sense of brotherhood among the customers and that's what made people choose harley davidson over a suzuki i think that's that's essential for retaining a strong customer base and gaining that loyalty that uh i think this is the most essential part to do achieve that target i'm definitely going to send this advice to our brand and marketing team and maybe a couple of articles about harley davidson because that's a beautiful example indeed they've been in a situation of a crisis and they didn't have technological advance over their competitors and yeah they built a, a very unique brand that many people can associate with and appeal to it that's it's incredible I think it's a really, really great example. Moving to the next question, I wanted to ask you how you think that uh, the development of the of the industry that we are working on changed in the last five to ten years, for example, because startups and product companies moved to agile and lean methodologies. We've been using experimentation and UX strategies. Many products moved to AI and ML as well, which is a very hot thing. And some tried blockchain and there is always like those technologies that appear and super trendy. So a lot of movement has changed in the last five to 10 years. And I have absolutely zero insight in consulting because that's not my industry. And what do you think is hot there right now? It's, a, it's an interesting question. In fact, uh, we asked ourselves the same very uh, this very question uh, multiple times and wonder what exactly is uh, is the industry headed towards so well uh, technology has disrupted all businesses across the board hands down uh, no question about it 
in consulting, uh, in research, and uh, in, in, in market research, in business research, uh, I'm seeing a lot of uh, processes being automated already. Say for a typical project, nearly uh, 60 to 65% of the effort goes in data collection. Like I had mentioned, we, we do everything that we do is strongly backed by data. Hence, data becomes the uh, most consuming aspect of any of our projects, right? Uh, so, with a lot of automation, we we have already achieved a significant reduction. Now, probably about forty percent of the uh, time goes in data collection. Uh, we've used a lot of tools, uh, crawling, uh, parsing, scraping. What uh, these these various uh, tools to uh, automate the data collection process. However, all of this is just possible on structured data, data which has some kind of labeling, tags, or RSS, or anything. So, this is how about when we are dealing with unstructured data? I think this is where uh, things are going to move going forward. Uh, so, data which which doesn't have any labeling or doesn't have any index to it is where uh, we would like to bring in a lot of automation in. So currently, uh, let's say I am tracking uh, 100 competitors for a particular client. So getting revenue for 100 competitors through automation is quite easy. But now, if I'm trying to understand, hey, what is the roadmap for these 100 companies? That's where my tool gets confused. Now, what do you mean by a roadmap? So this is where I think uh, machine learning or deep learning will come in play as we go on, where we uh, teach the algorithm that, hey, when we say strategic outlook of a company, these are the things that makes or adds up to strategic outlook. Once this uh, machine starts learning, understands uh, through repetitive process, I think that's when we want to automate the unstructured data collection. This is where I think uh, the next five to six years, we, we will see a lot of development on. On the other end, uh, apart from the technology side, uh, I see a lot of uh, convergence happening in the industry. So, for instance, I, I, I've I been working with the auto clients, auto industry uh, across my career. But to be honest, in the past six months, uh, most of my work has come from telecom companies or software companies, right, which was unheard of. I mean, even three, four years back, uh, why, what is the role of a telecom company in auto value chain, right? What is the role of software uh, in the automotive industry? So I've seen I'm seeing a lot of convergence happening with, uh, with across verticals, and that itself is uh, is quite kind of intimidating and overwhelming for me because now I need to understand how telecom works and how the mindset of a telecom client is. How do they approach growth? Because I'm pretty well aware about how automotive industry thinks. Now I'm trying to learn how telecom or a software or a high-tech uh, company like Google or Facebook thinks. Right. So this is something which I see will 
will happen in the next five to ten years. Yeah, I think uh, we definitely need to look more at data aspect of the products. And last episode, I had a chat with Deepak, who is an mm-hmm. AI product manager from Hitachi. And he mentioned that more and more things and more and more products are being built on top of the data. So instead of having um, a tool where you can share something like an email, you generate the data yourself. And now we having tools that are consuming data, let's say all the modern aspects of social networks and recommendation engines or reviews or Amazon search and so on. You consume data and you provide the product on top of that. And some products cannot work without data at all, like AI assistants, Siri, Alexa, and so on. They need data by default. And it's very interesting because previously we noticed that product and tech should work together to make a successful product. And now we see that product, tech, and data should work together to make a successful product. That's a very interesting transition that I see in in the technology and startups world. Absolutely, yes. Another thing that I wanted to ask you is that, of course, when companies come to you, they lack the skills that you have and they lack the frameworks and experience and so on. That's quite obvious. But if you would be able to give an advice to companies, what could they do a little bit better or what could they invest more attention into to be better prepared for situations where they are lending in the end when they need this advice on growth strategies on innovation so what companies right now can do to improve or senior management maybe in particular uh, to be less often in such situations where they need like a dedicated treatment for their uh, problem interesting question and it's it's a it's a, a double-edged sword because uh, if companies start doing this then probably i'll be out of a job <laughs> oh i don't think so <laughs> in my experience what i've seen is uh, companies sometimes fail to be updated about the industry uh, they are less aware or they're so so much involved in their own internal operations that they forget or uh, they miss miss on keeping themselves updated about the industry trends uh, what other companies what their competitors are doing what is the regulatory aspect how how the landscape has evolved and so that i think is essentially if they do it on a regular basis probably decision making would be easy uh, would be more cons- uh, i mean more convenient and more quicker more agile uh, i mean they would need an validation from an external person if if it's a it's a very big decision let's say uh, a 10 million dollar investment they would need that but uh, coming to that stage of where you're saying yes i'm pretty confident that we should be taking making this decision over xyz that can be solved if clients are more up to date uh, say spend an hour's time uh, speak with their colleagues not just within the firm but uh, across the industry understand what is new uh, what is happening uh, and what it means to them and that message I'm going to definitely send to the research team because they would love it. And they can probably use this reasoning to also 
motivate the the management to dedicate more budget to our research and market research and customers' inside activities. Excellent. All right. I have only one question that I have on my mind, and this is more related to your profession. So as an expert coming from many, many years of experience, what do you think is one of the most undervalued but still very critical and necessary skill in your profession? Uh, uh, although an analyst or a consultant uh, requires to uh, to be good at almost everything because you never know what the uh, next client problem is it could be anything under the sun right so there is a lot of uh, skill set required in terms of uh, logical reasoning business acumen technical know-how communication but amongst all of this uh, one aspect which i feel is is less talked about or is uh, doesn't get that visibility which it should but defines your credibility in the industry is ethics and integrity so uh, during a project uh, so since we work a lot around uh, hypothesis and data and trying to solve a problem or, or it could it could be just be giving insights helping a client to make a better decision right so during these product uh, projects most often an analyst i'm just talking as an analyst all right so where uh, an analyst creates this outline in his head that hey for this hypothesis this would be the perfect solution right and this registers uh, this perfect solution is imprinted in his subconsciousness all right uh, and he tries to fit that data into that framework so that he gets to that perfect solution and this might might or might not be a fair picture of the market right so this could if it is the right picture of the market then kudos it is awesome you got the perfect solution but if it isn't and you're trying to fit in that solution uh, that perfect solution you're just trying to I mean, not uh, fudge data, but trying to cut corners and try to fit in that uh, into that perfect solution is, I think, uh, happens a lot in the industry, and that's when your integrity comes in play and say, "Hey, I am going to represent that perfect, not the perfect picture, but the real picture in front of my client." I think that is more important than anything else. Forget the perfect solution. I'm going to show this is the ground reality, and that is what the client has come uh, come to you for, right? So I think ethics and integrity is something which uh, doesn't get that uh, visibility that it demands or it should be getting in our industry. Yes. Amazing. Thank you for your advice. Um, if our listeners would like to connect with you online and maybe ask a follow-up questions, what would be the best place to reach you? Uh, uh, they can reach me through my LinkedIn page. I'll be happy to discuss further and answer any questions. Amazing. Thank you so much, uh, Siddharth. It was a great conversation and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Top Tier is produced by me, Daniel Pavlichkov. Music for the show by Emmett Fenn. If you like the episode, please hit subscribe and let me know what you think. The feedback form is in the episode's description. Thank you so much and talk to you next time.